Hey, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I am here today with Dr. James Lindsay. He is back for the second time. If you have not checked the first episode, you should definitely do that. And if you're watching on YouTube, you should know that they cut it in half. So we had to put up a second episode, um, which was very interesting if you notice exactly where they cut it in half. Um, (laughs) But anyway, Dr. James Lindsay is a doctor of math, and I am convinced that he has somehow figured out how to bend the space-time continuum because he has more hours in the day than I do, apparently, uh, to get all the stuff done that he does and to still fight with trolls on Twitter. Um, and he's an author, and he has a really great podcast, New Discourses, which if you're not listening to, you should. I highly recommend, I always tell people, I'm the annoying person who sends all the books and all the white papers to people, but I recognize a lot of people don't have the time or the inclination to read them. So the next best thing to do would be to listen to him analyze them. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm all right. Um, You know, I've recovered from COVID, so we're we're getting back on track. I understand. Yeah, it was was definitely a challenge for me as well. And I I was just telling you, I've never been quite as sick recurrently as I have this year. But uh, yeah, so well, let's dive in. One of the first things I wanted to kind of dive into is the, you know, it's been considered a conspiracy theory for so long. um, But now I think people are starting to recognize that, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory, that it is real. We are living through the Great Reset. And I'm curious if you've noticed parallels to the administrative state and the stakeholder capitalism put forth in the Great Reset. I mean, the it, it, that's kind of, as far as I can tell, how it's made to work is kind of through the administrative state apparatus. Um, the, the Great Reset is what's going on right now, um, kind of fumbling, but I, you know, they have a very long-term plan. And so there, it's not like it's just going to go away, but, you know, obviously it was going to be predicated off of using the public health apparatus and thus the administrative apparatus that, that enforces that, whether that's the FDA, the CDC, OSHA, et cetera, to use as Klaus Schwab, the architect of the Great Reset, as he said it, you know, we have a very narrow window of opportunity to use a COVID-19 pandemic to reset the world. And it's like, well, okay, so they're trying to use the COVID-19 pandemic to do it. And how are they going to do that? Well, it's through this, these administrative apparatuses. So for example, the Biden administration tried to put forth a vaccine mandate that uh, for employers, you know, above a certain threshold of employees, and it was said to be unconstitutional. And you know, they said, no, we're going to do it through OSHA. We're going to claim that the, the administrative apparatus, uh, which is technically obviously underneath the purview of the executive branch, is now going to be authorized to, to implement what, as we have now seen, was, was an unconstitutional mandate uh, on people. And so the, the, uh, the, there are a few different pieces, but basically... A government in a country like the United States doesn't have the authority in its constitutional form, at least, to 
to put something like the Great Reset onto the people. And so they are using both the administrative, the, the, the kind of very grown and bloated administrative apparatus uh, where you have unaccountable bureaucrats who were not elected, who are going to be the ones who are going to, in these agencies that are going to enforce all of the policies. Uh, and they are policies, not laws. And then um, secondly, they're also using the, the corporations uh, to do the bidding of government where the government is not legally allowed to do so. For example, we just saw both the Surgeon General and the uh, White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, came out and said, that we need to be doing more to pressure Spotify to censor Joe Rogan. And the government, did, not only does it not have the authority to do that, it, it's a blatant First Amendment violation. And as a matter of fact, it's already well-established Supreme Court jurisprudence. It is well-established precedent that the government cannot request that private actors do for them that which they are not legally allowed to do. So this is a direct First Amendment violation by at least both the Surgeon General and uh, the White House press secretary, so therefore the White House, uh, to say nothing of Congress people who have also spoken up in this regard, Democratic Congresswomen primarily, who have spoken up in this regard, again, going outside of the constitutional authority that they have of violating the First Amendment uh, to do so illegally. In, so then what? Well, how do you hold them accountable? Whether you come back to the administrative apparatus that's not doing what it's supposed to do, like the Justice Department, et cetera, uh, is not taking the action that it should be taking to deal with this. The oversight just isn't there because these entities, corporations, and the administrative apparatus are so thoroughly captured um, that we're not seeing um, the protections guaranteed to Americans by the Constitution being able to be upheld. And so it, it's you can see how the, the corruption works when you start to look at it in that regard. Right. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit too, because I know you've done so much uh, uh, deep dives on the new left. And they were really, uh, I think, the uh, ones who gave such uh, credence to the administrative state. Uh, and they, you know, and in fact, that's what they would talk about is how we were now going to have these quote unquote experts uh, who had to consult with the government. And uh, so, I, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about the genesis of that and how that ties into, I think it's paved the way for what we're seeing now. Yeah. So in this, I mean, there was stuff going on within the genesis of that's actually long and kind of complicated and certainly not deep into my area of expertise, but you know, the, the, the discipline, if you will, the academic discipline of public administration has been since at least the 1950s. What was that guy's name? Dwight. Um, he's got a funny last name and I always forget it. There's, there's a fellow who actually wrote a book called The Administrative State in the 50s. And he ended up putting on a conference in the 60s. And that's where the concept of social equity theory was hashed out for the first time. And the idea that it's going to be necessary for the administrative apparatus, not just to focus on efficiency and uh, um economy. So, you know, are we doing efficient processes within government? Are we doing uh, economical, are we making economical decisions in terms of how we administer public policy uh, and public works? But also they said that we need to introduce social equity as a third pillar of public administration. So you can see that the kind of very leftist um, Marxist really agenda was creeping in through the administrative apparatus. And of course, they would want it to, because the constitutional process is too slow and too divided in its powers and too 
internally accountable to allow for a Marxist takeover of the United States. So you have to have a huge bloated bureaucratic apparatus that it can colonize in order for it to work. And so the history of, um, you know, the administrative state apparatus being relevant in this way. And we get to, when we're talking about, you know, the big conference that I mentioned was in 1968, when you start talking about things that were happening in the 1960s that were vaguely left, you are talking about the new left. And the new left was this kind of, you know, conglomerate movement of neo-Marxists who were figuring out that classical Marxism didn't work for various reasons, but they still wanted to achieve Marxist uh, ends. And then also other left-leaning, you know, radicals and and, and not even radicals, just, you know, hard left-oriented uh, uh, progressive types. And they kind of had this movement that it actually arose for a little while, and it wasn't very influential for very long because the radical elements kept doing violent things and people didn't like them. And they were internally fighting quite a lot as they do. And it didn't really go very far, but what they ended up doing, they made out of this, which was recorded, for example, in this book called The Critical Turn in Education, which says this right from the very beginning is that the new left rapidly fell apart uh, by the mid 1970s, but its ethos didn't go away. But what happened was they realized that they needed to, to create out of the, the ashes of the new left, they created a what they call an academic left. And so this is where your expert class right. is going to come in. So you've got this administrative thing growing and they are going to staff that with you know relevant experts. And then what they decided to do was to shift their attention out of the streets and into the classrooms, into the university classrooms in particular. And so it's the grooming of experts became this academic left became the grooming of people who are going to put, you know, this sort of policy in place, and they were going to be the handpicked ideal administrators who were going to make it make their way into that administrative apparatus, um, groomed in the best universities, of course, to fill those roles. And you can kind of see the whole corruption taking place um, in, in a number of pieces and steps through, you know, maybe 65 through about 1980 or so as this kind of behemoths started, these two behemoths started to grow, the administrative apparatus on the one hand, and the, uh, the, the academic left to staff it with the relevant so-called experts on the other hand. And, you know, if I'm not exactly a technocracy kind of guy myself, but you, one can understand the impulse that you do want informed experts, you know, making kinds of decisions. And if you're going to have an administrative apparatus, you do want the experts in there. The problem is, is that when you have this extraordinary political bias in terms of what qualifies somebody as being expertise as an expert, or that qualifies, as, you know, you have to say the correct things to be considered to have expertise, then you've got a big growing problem on your hands. And then when those are the people that are going to be empowered to um, administer policy, you have an even bigger problem on your hands. You have the making of an illegitimate technocracy uh, that is subverting the republic at that point. Yeah, and the, the, the new left, they, they did, that was part of their uh, policy. They said that uh, you know it couldn't be extricated. The part of being an expert was that you were politically aligned. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Problematic. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm not sure how expertise and uh, political correctness are synonymous, but somehow they, they made that the two synonymous. But uh, you had recently tweeted saying that you had uh, like blown your own mind going down the Marxist rabbit hole. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I'm curious of what in particular uh, spawned that. So I'm, I've been on this kind of deep dive for my new discourses podcast. I've been trying to do this very long and sprawling series that I think is going to comprise 30 or 40 plus podcasts <laughs> by the time it's actually done into critical education. So critical theory as it gets applied to education, sometimes it's called critical education theory, sometimes it's called critical pedagogy, that's usually the word that they use. Um, and so anyway, the critical turn in education, basically, how did our education system become Marxist? And so I'm starting in the middle of the story. Unfortunately, I don't want to, I, I haven't taken the time to go back and study people like john Dewey and all of the, the so called social reformers or school reformers, the movement that began kind of in the 1918 really when public school became compulsory was 1918 and immediately the Marxists seized upon this bureaucratic opportunity to start skewing education and so the school reformers like Dewey etc started to redwash our education there I'm actually starting my story you know with, with with about 1970 so I'm following this book the critical turn in education that I mentioned and I'm going through it and what I'm doing is I'm going through that book and then going into the various um I'm going into the various other books that it cites. So if they bring up, if it brings up a book by of some, you know, not just mentions some small book, but something of significance, I then divert out of the main thread of the, the, the podcast series and go into that other text. And so I diverted into a book from 1985 called The Politics of Education by Paulo Freire. Paulo Freire is a Brazilian Marxist who ruined everything. And the simplest way to put it, and he, but total Marxist education program, and he, he brought something new to um, kind of the Marxist movement, which was faltering by the mid 1980s, kind of in general, uh, in most departments. In fact, most people thought that Marxism was on the way out finally for the last time outside of maybe China. And it turns out that in North Korea, and it turns out that that wasn't the case. And so I'm reading Freire and I'm this book and I'm going through for the podcast various things. And it just becomes impossible to understand what, how did Freire become so popular? What in the world made him like, what does he represent? Because if you read the people who read Freire, you know, or who brought Freire in, they, they have this almost, you know, faith-like or religious-like or cult-like devotion to the guy. And it, it reads very much like they found their, you know, magic guru who has told them the secrets to all of life. And so I'm reading the Freire and then I'm thinking, you know, what the only way to comprehend what's going on here, as far as I can tell, is to understand that Marxism is a theology and that Freire is one of its later and most effective prophets. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know if it's a good idea to draw any particular biblical comparisons to which prophet or whatever uh, he might be, but definitely he, he fulfills the role of a religious prophet who's kind of bringing the people back. They've lost their faith in the Marxist theology, and he's bringing the people back to faith. If you follow the Old Testament, that's basically what the prophets work out to be. Uh, the Israelites lose their, lose their way. They betray God or deny God or step away from God or whatever. And then some prophet arises that speaks the truth of God again to them and brings them back into, 
into the graces of God and gets them back on track for a little while. And then they screw up again. And another prophet comes along and that's basically the old Testament over and over and over again with Jesus. You know, people wouldn't say he's a prophet exactly, unless you're a Muslim or something, but coming along is kind of the, the kind of the last one in that sequence. Well, Freire turns out to be one of these prophets for the Marxist theology. But if I say the Marxist theology, I have to explain what a Marxist theology is because nobody thinks of it that way. They think it's an economic theory. It's not. It is actually a religion. It is a theology all the way to the bottom. It answers questions about what it means to be a human. It answers questions about what meaning in life is. It answers. It explains actually what the, the nature of being itself is as an entire religious architecture values, uh, what truth and knowledge represent. It has an entire theological construct built within it. And so I started to read a lot of the older Marx, the stuff that he wrote in the early 1840s before he was writing, say the communist manifesto, which is 1848, well, 47, 48, um, I think he finished the manifesto at the very end of 47 and it was published in 48. But um, at any rate, you know, his earlier writings, 1844, he had a number of very religious flavored writings, his critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, for example, his uh, economic and philosophic manuscripts, uh, which are also known as the 1844 manuscripts. Uh, so I went and read those looking into this and taking kind of survey of how does this fit kind of a theological model. What's the theodicy? What's the soteriology? What's the eschatology? They're all, they're all there, right? Yeah. How did Marx actually see this? And so I dig in and dig in. And finally, I blow my mind by fully connecting with the idea. I mean, it actually, it was an extraordinarily stressful process. It was really a deep, ugly dive into Marx's early, most kind of theoretical writing. And um, I came out of this, uh, with my mind blown and rather profoundly changed in my understanding of how Marx and Marxism works. And it's to understand that it's a religion. It is ultimately a very dark inverted faith. That's goal is to tear everything down. So as to, well, I mean, they want to tear everything down because they think the existing system is intrinsically uh, stuck in, in a pattern of domination and oppression. And so if you're going to get away from that, you have to tear everything that exists down because that's the only way you can stop the domination and oppression. But it actually is also a theory of spiritual renewal. And um, kind of the simplest way to put it is that it's a religion that operate. The, the goal is, is submission to the collective. Man has to realize that he's actually a social creature and so therefore he awakens to his true consciousness of what he really is by becoming socialist man and socialist man however only obtains within a socialist society and in the long end when communism arrives socialist man in socialist society become co-continuous uh man and society are no different from one another anymore because man is completely uh submissive to his social nature uh and true freedom is therefore bowing one 100% completely to the collective in every single person. And it's a, it, there's a lot more to it. And I've, people have commented the podcast I did on Marxist theology is about three and a half hours long. And people have commented that it's the first one that I've done where they just couldn't keep up with the ideas. It's just that difficult. So I put that I blew my mind on Twitter because it, 
I mean, it was right out at the edge of what I'm really cognitively capable of doing. And I mean, it's so weird. It's kind of strange to say it, but I actually have this bad habit of rubbing my face when I'm thinking really hard, <laughs> rubbed my face so hard and so thoroughly that I rubbed a bald spot on one side of my chin, wow. uh, not even realizing that I was doing that while I was trying to parse out this idea. Uh, it's all grown back now, but I actually rubbed, you know, this big rectangular bald spot when <laughs> I was stroking my beard too hard, trying to figure this out and understand it. And so the podcast is out there. People say it's very difficult. And hopefully over time, I can kind of simplify the arguments within it and help people see it. But um, I think that, listen that to it. I thought it was fantastic. I thought that's the really key. Um, yep. there, there, there were several things that came up for me. Uh, one, I just want to comment on this whole notion of uh, tearing down uh, I think it's really relevant to say that a lot of people don't realize when they say build back better, uh, first you have to tear down in order to build back. That's the part they leave out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing that came up for me is I feel like I need to reread Heidegger um, because I don't know how familiar you are with his works, but it seems like he was very clearly, very heavily influenced by both Marx and uh, Hegel in a very uh, theological way. Yeah, actually, I think that's probably important. Uh, one of them, I'm, you know, I'm not exactly as expert in Heidegger as I need to be for what's going on. I think but he the truth also for the rise of Hitler uh, and Nazi Germany. Yeah, go on. Right, right. No, yeah. Well, with Heidegger, the kind of key theological idea that I end up going back to a lot, and there are a lot, obviously, his book is what is <laughs> being on being or something like this. And, you know, being in time, yeah. Being in time, that's it. Yeah. And so he's, um, you know, th those are deeply ontological concepts. And, but the one that I really go back to is what does he call it in German? Gewurft height or something like this flungness thrown. having been thrown yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is ultimately actually the key idea that I've derived from what little Heidegger I really understand. And it's this, that the view within this broad Marxian faith is in fact, this is a Gnostic idea is that yeah. we have been flung into the world, our stupid parents, if you want to start there, or you could say it was stupid God, whoever, somebody made us and we didn't ask to be made and we've been flung into the world and the world isn't, wasn't made for us. We didn't even get, nobody asked me if I wanted to be born. And here I am flung into this world that's not made, it's not giving me what I want. I'm not getting my way with it. It's a miserable experience that I've been flung into the world that's not made for me. And if I had had the opportunity to be asked ahead of time, do you really <laughs> want to be part of this world? I would have been, you know, looked at the pro the prospects and said, probably not, but I got flung in anyway. And so this is a very Gnostic way of looking at the world is that human beings have been flung into the world and we are in a sense alienated from our our true nature and our, our true happiness, our path to happiness and our true liberation by the fact that we've been flung into this world without our consent and that we are in fact jailed in this world yeah. as a, as a result of that. And so, you know, if we get theological with it, then, you know, God is held up not to be deity, but rather as a demon who, who created man to prove that he can be creator. And now we're going to get real deep. And uh -huh. so he created man to prove that he's actually creator. And he puts us in the garden, which was actually our birthright in the first place. And, uh, but then throws us out of it, flings us out into the, flung out into the world again. And uh, because we disobeyed him, but he's actually, you know, he was actually, we're like 
we're like he if you to use a modern analogy rather than the garden of eden it's like he's a computer programmer and he built the simulation and built us and so we were his little like digi pets and then you know so he's actually this cruel thing and then he's he's throwing us out of a good, he's he's like oh yeah you didn't do exactly what i want now i'm going to make make your life miserable but the view is actually from from the marxist perspective is that no we we that was our birthright and you're fake and eating the the fruit of the tree of knowledge was going to make us like you in other words going to make us into creators ourselves and then we don't need you and can see you as what you really are which is evil and a demon and that's that's really the roots of i mean we can put it in the, the phrasing of marx like that but that's really the roots of gnosticism all the way back even in a kind of very religious mystical kind of way uh, you know, that has nothing to do with the scientific approach or scientific approach of, of Marx. Um, and so I, you know, I focus on, uh, as far as Heidegger goes, I, I think it's probably important to read him again, but it's to really just understand that they're un, they, they fundamentally believe that it is a curse to have been born. And the reason that it's a curse is because the world is not made for you. And so if you can get everybody to rearrange the world to suit you, that curse goes away. Mm -hmm. And we, as you know, if you go to Herbert Marcuse, he says in, in Eros and Civilization in 60 or in 55, he says, you know, we, we, we can get back into the Garden of Eden. And the way we do it is by taking another bite of the right. tree of knowledge. For Marx, he says, you know, everything comes down to you are as a you know, subject and object and dialectical relationship. So you're a subject and you create in your mind an image of what you want to see in the world and you bring it into the world. And then by reflecting upon that, you realize yourself as creator. You don't need a creator outside of you. You are creator. And man, by being creator, by being creative, by doing productive work, creates the world. He creates his own conditions, but he also creates himself. He authors history. He raises man out of the position of being in the uh, just mere animal, but he, uh, he also comes to know himself as that which can create, in other words, like God. And so you have this long, continuous Gnostic belief that we've been flung out into the world, the situation's intolerable, and that there's secret special knowledge that allows you to get back into you know, kind of paradise. And it turns out that the secret, secret knowledge is that, hey, we're actually social, which if you boil it down to what they really mean is if everybody else does what I want them to do, then I have a great life. And that's why that's what it really means to be social is everybody else has to do what I want them to do. But then they have, you know, they talk, they're not that course they say there's intersubjectivity you have your subjectivity i have my subjectivity so i have to do what you want and you have to do what i want uh, with no domination whatsoever and that can only happen when we have co-continuous consciousness that we actually have the same wants and that that therefore we must again submit ourselves to a perfect social order but it will always so conveniently be that it's everybody has to behave the way that people like Karl Marx and Martin Heidegger want them to behave in order to make their miserable lives less miserable, like make everything work for me. And then I won't feel flung into the world anymore. And that's my birthright. And it's to see there's this gross entitlement at the center of all of this uh, kind of um, Gnostic philosophy, whether that's pre-scientific or whether that's Marxist and th therefore modern scientific uh, in flavor. Uh, well, there's so much to parse out in that, um, but I would say, right? <laughs> but I would say uh, the scient 
to stick, you know, we'll call yeah. it for lack of a better, I, I, I see that as a tool, you know, a teleological tool for their ends, yeah. um, which you can certainly speak on. Um, but there are a few other things I want to say. The whole wokest movement, I feel like is, a, you know, certainly the Frankfurt School talks about this a lot, you know, that their agenda was to normalize the outliers. And that is exactly this you know, make, you know, the world around me suit me, even if I'm, you know, I, I'm one person in the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's the way we do that. Um, and then my third uh, kind of thing that I'd love you to speak on, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Richard, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Vombrand, uh, his work, and uh, Paul Kinger, I'm going to butcher both of them, but they both, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, they both uh, wrote on uh, Marx's Ode to Satan, which. Oh, right, right. I know about that. I don't know either of their work, but I do know a little bit about that, uh, that mentality. Yeah, Marx, people don't realize actually was avowedly a Satanist. Yeah. And. <laughs> Um, it makes sense when you start going down the Marxist rabbit hole, it, it seemed perfectly satanic. Yeah, it, it is. It is it's a perfect in, inversion of, of the natural order because it, it starts with the premise that one can see them come to see themselves as creator by bringing your creation into the world. Um, and so whether you want to put it in terms of Satan, whether you want to put it in terms of Prometheus, who Marx also invoked frequently in his his kind of mythological writing, or if you want to put it in terms of Pygmalion, uh, the Greek myth, the Pygmalion myth, um, you see this again and again and again in in, in the underlying mentality, uh, certainly there. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting when you talk about the uh, narcissistic entitled uh, perspective of, you know, this Marxist philosophy. Um, and I think it's really interesting when you, uh, as you've outlined so much, you know, queer theory, uh, which is one of the key tool components of uh, the woke movement, and how, you know, they, they, they don't want you to have an essence. And so essentially, it is to destabilize identities. I've noticed this trend. I, I talked about this like 10 years ago, I was really seeing an uptick in or just, you know, anecdotally, observationally, you know, not clinically, we'll say, uh, but in a rise of narcissistic borderline personality disorder. And I really felt like it was, yeah, I'm going to be conspiratorial about this, but I really do feel like it was by design, um, because, you know, one of the key components of uh, usurpation ideological subversion is demoralization and destabilization. And so if you have a destabilized society and individuals who have no essence, um, and then you have a much easier time of rising to power. So yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on all that. Yeah, I've kind of abandoned believing that this was just well-intended things that went wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, the self-esteem movement in the schools was particularly um, damaging in this regard. It was a gigantic uh, source of a rise of kind of unqualified self-pride, aka narcissism. Uh, in, in young people. And I'm starting to conclude that I think it was largely intentional and groomed. Uh, and then you add in the queer theory with the, the destabilization of identity, which wasn't particularly strong until maybe the last 10 years. Uh, you know, but then you start to get this impression like this has been a sequential kind of stage based thing. The, the narcissism has actually uh, really seem to have increased. But of course, when you look at the philosophy, 
whether, however you want to look at it, that's what you should expect. That the idea is that you're going to have to, you're, you, at the bottom in the kind of the Heideggerian sense, you're telling kids you've been flung into this world, nobody understands you, and you know everything's miserable because of everything else, but you're the one who's kind of the center that's never wrong. Your subjective experience is the author of reality and is never wrong. And what you're going to do and and then what makes you special is just being who you were born as like not what you've accomplished not what you've done but just having been born the way that you were born that's what makes you fundamentally special this isn't developmentally appropriate uh because this it it's going to engender the kinds of personality disorders that we're seeing. The other thing is, is that so many of our role models are going to be personality disordered. And we know that one of the causes of personality disorders is in, is children being exposed to inappropriate relationships. Say, for example, that break down the structural barriers between adulthood and childhood. Schizoid personality disorder is almost completely conclusively found to be that caused by when you have inappropriate, emotionally deep relationships between adults and children in the age range of like six to 10 years old, in particular, it could be later, maybe earlier, but not saying that there's sexual abuse or something like that, but rather inappropriate emotional reliance by adults on children. But you look at the critical pedagogy idea, and it says that we should be breaking down the barrier between adult and child, teacher and student. The student should be elevated as the actual authority, as the actual teacher. And then you mix in um, these other elements like the queer theory that, you know, you're special the way that you were born. And, but how were you really born? Well, it's not that you were born a boy. Somebody just wrote that on your birth certificate. You know, it's who you actually feel like. And then any weird feeling you have should be indulged because we have to get further and further into the other. Uh, You can start to see that. And and then, you know, again, you have this appropriate, you have these inappropriate dissolving of the boundaries that children need to develop appropriately. And the result will be personality disorders. And we're seeing that rampantly in so many kids. Uh, and as they grow into adults um, and the, the rates of personality disorders, depression, anxiety, et cetera, are off the charts because all of this is a giant failure. Kind of deeper in the theory, you know, we, we you talk about this, you know, the outsiders with the neo-Marxist, the Frankfurt School goal. Well, I mean, again, this we've talked about the Gnostic elements of this and people get upset when I talk about this, but there's a hermetic, in other words, alchemy based yep. element to this as well. And the belief there is that God can't understand himself without creating an abject other by which he understands himself. And so everything, if you read Marx, if you read Queer theory, you know, is two ends of the same spectrum of literature. You see everywhere this focus on the other, always looking at how the thing is the other, the other, the other. You see, talk a lot about this too, actually, the other. Yeah. So the, the and, and and so so for Marx, you know, the object, you are the subject, and the object is the other. So that which is going on in your head is that that which is real, and then the world outside, the objective world outside, is other to you. As you come to understand yourself as, but your your goal is to understand yourself as that which creates that which is outside of your own head. That's the so-called dialectic of the subject and the object, which in the end, that they will be sublated and you will end up having no true division between subject and object. The subject will see himself in the object and the object will be the true reflection of the subject and they become co-continuous. This is the dialectical nature of this. In the queer theory, it's the exact same thing. So you're constantly, you're not who you are, you're 
constantly in a process of becoming who you are. And how do you do that? By setting yourself as an oppositional other to everything else in the world. So you, you stable sense of identity means that you've decided to stabilize too soon. You've forgone what you could become and you've actually fallen into the trap that you've, and they would say that you've objectified yourself and lost your subjectivity, sacrificed your subjectivity to the social relations that have conditioned you to decide this is where you're supposed to accept yourself. And it's a complete catastrophe. It's just a complete catastrophe. This is a very poisonous philosophy where now the goal with queer theory is to do alchemy on yourself, to enter into a permanent state of transition. Not that you're becoming your best you, like something motivational, or that you're constantly striving to improve versus yesterday, but rather that you are actually becoming something that you are not, which is a, the creator, for example, of, of, of yourself. Like, for example, with your body, putting yourself through all of these hormones and surgeries and all of these other behaviors. And this is always a thing with Marxism is that they are going to try to take the front leading edge of technology and say that we finally have the capacity to do this. So right now, the front leading edge of technology allows people to take hormones. It allows people to, to, to undergo cosmetic surgeries to remove their breasts or remove their genitals or change their genitals or do facial reconstruction surgery. And sooner or later, the front edge of that technology is going to be further down the road of completely, you know, remaking yourself, say, through, you know, something that influences how your brain works or, you know, whatever else. And they constantly believe this kind of transhumanist remaking man at a fundamental level kind of thing, or that you can plug into the machine and you get to be whatever avatar you want to be. If you want to be a man today, a woman tomorrow, whatever, in the metaverse, you are that. Uh, there's this kind of constant belief that we are at the edge of technology that allows us to overcome the nature that we have been flung into against our will that oppresses us by the fact that it's not serving exactly whatever our subjective whims are. Um, and that's the poison at the heart of this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you tied that together because I think people often don't see, uh, you know, the convergence of the Marxist philosophy um, and the the technocratic agenda and the transhuman agenda, and they are, uh, you know, a synthesis of one another. They and that's they right. Stem from, yeah. Yeah, they think that they're wizards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the uh, simple way to say it. Essentially, yeah. They think uh, that they're wizards who ultimately will be able to have like complete control and dominion over everything, over reality itself, or we'll just remake reality to be whatever it is we need it to be. Uh, and the way that we'll achieve that is by putting the people who have the correct understanding and power over everything. And right. so the bid for that right now are these stakeholders and the public private partnership, et cetera, going through the, you know, the great reset or coming out on the other side of the great reset, which the goal, the great reset is just a lever. The great yep. reset is, is, is a tool. And the goal is to achieve what they are calling the fourth industrial revolution, which isn't quite correct. I think that we are going through because of the advent of, you know, AI and technology and the computers and every other thing, social media, et cetera. We are going through a fourth industrial revolution, like the other three, where there's a fundamental change in how things are going to have to be organized, how things are going to be done, because technology is going to fundamentally change the nature of work. It's going to fundamentally change a lot of things. And we're going to have to sort out what that looks like for people. Yeah. What these weirdos have is they think they have the solution. 
to what that's going to look like. They're going to be the ones who are going to, and, and their, their goal is to remake mankind itself. Uh, hive mind, uh, you know, recursal singularity. I have it somewhere here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so, so they, you know, their goal isn't to have this be an actual fourth, an actual industrial revolution where, you know, the changes in technology cause a big revolution in the way that we have to do things and even organize society, but rather to use that as an excuse to force some crackpot plan on everybody where we're going to remake everything in the world to this kind of circular economy sustainability model with them in charge, of course, and that the people who are in the so-called creative class who, as they put it, the people who will still be employable on the other side of the so-called industrial revolution, because they can't imagine what the poor plebs will do. They have no idea. So they have to put them just in kind of a socially managed equity system where everybody gets UBI and lives in a pod and eats bugs. Um, But the the elites won't. The elites, in fact, will, the anointed will be given, they believe, you know, magical medical technology and computer interfaces or robot cyborg type interfaces where they're essentially, they think they're going to live forever. They're mm-hmm. going to be extraordinarily super intelligent and they're going to be able to, you know, they're going to rightfully rule over the rest of the world with these technological enhancements and their eternal life. Like you saw in Time Magazine, Time Magazine had an article a year and a change ago, where it's a 2045, the year that human, the year that mankind becomes immortal. Yeah. And it shows a literal picture of like a mannequin being plugged into the matrix, like with a wire sticking out of its head. And it's like, uh, that's what they think that they're going to achieve. Um, the fundamental transformation of man rather than the transformation of society by technology. It's going to be the fundamental transformation of man by technology. And then when you go back and read, things like Marcuse and he's saying biological foundation for socialism and and essay and liberation. And he starts talking about how you create conditions where you interject a morality until people don't know how to live without it. And it's going to be the socialist morality. So then what do you create them into the social man, socialist man that lives, that doesn't know how to live outside of a socialist society. And you can kind of see where their plans are going. Yeah, absolutely. And and it goes uh, way beyond that. I mean, uh, Birkenhead and Bertrand Russell talked about the transhuman agenda and the technocracy and how that was all going to be laid out. Um, But I think it's uh, worth uh, pointing out the Marcusa and then, uh, so are you familiar with uh, Klaus's new book is going to be The Great Narrative? I've seen it, but I haven't read it yet. I need to. I ordered it. The Great Narrative. Give him, you know, but yeah, I hate to endorse him in any way, but I'm very, very curious. I want to, they tell you their plans and the only way to know their plans is to read their, their writing. So they lay it all out. Um, but I'm curious your thoughts on, to, to me, this is like another iteration of, you know, Leotard's uh, meta-narrative. And uh, also I think uh, it's going to combine, you know, Marcuse's because it's only one narrative that can be accepted into this great narrative. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, you know, it depends on how you read the postmodernists. You bring up Leotard. Um, I try to read them kind of cautiously and as uh, taking what I can from them. And, and what I can take from them is it's they're almost giving a warning. In fact, I think in the, the most charitable way to read them is That's that they're charitable. <laughs> describing and warning. Well, I mean, that all got picked up and weaponized. And I don't know necessarily what some of their visions were, but Lyotard talks, for example, in, in the postmodern condition where he lays out that the postmodernity means skepticism toward meta narratives. 
he also talks about this idea called legitim legitimation by pyrology. And mm -hmm. so pyrology is effectively a narrative believed by consensus. Mm -hmm. And so when you read the great narrative, you, you're seeing the intentional application of a meta narrative. Now, Lyotard says that post-modernity is skepticism toward those things. And obviously they don't want skepticism toward it. So this is why I can look at Lyotard and say, oh, well, this is clearly, you know, he's warning that this is, this is a bad thing. Now his crackpot is that he believed that everything is already that. Science is that, everything is that, liberalism is that, everything is is already legitimation or legitimized falsely through consensus belief and the, the, nothing's founded in actual reality. But what you actually have is this kind of weird reverse engineering of the postmodern texts. Same with, say, Baudrillard, who's talking about hyperreality and the kind of the realm of images that we all occupy. You can see that he's warning and despairing of the situation that we live in this kind of perfect propaganda world. And what you see is this reverse engineering and weaponization of it to achieve the Marcusean vision, which is a society of total control and sustainability, et cetera, that he, in the communist utopia that he had in mind. So you're seeing people creating the great narrative intentionally to create a pyrology that we all have to be, uh, that becomes the basis for legitimation. So they've weaponized that. There is a, you know, correct consensus and the experts and the technocrats and the stakeholders have figured it out and everybody who's not on board with that is is wrong and bad and evil etc um so we all have to go along with that they've they've reverse engineered Lyotard in the opposite direction and same thing with Baudrillard it's like well let's just create narratives let's just draw the map and tell people that's where they live regardless of what's really going on. So, you know, you have something like these truckers in Canada and they don't cover it except to claim that it must be racist and fascist and transphobic or something, you know, and they, they try to condition your reality to see the thing in the, in this false way. Um, no on the ground, no spending time getting to know what's really going on or anything. And, uh, you can, you can actually see it happening now. It's like the spell is breaking and more and more people are seeing it happening. So what I see is, you know, whatever the postmodernist's motivations were, you can read them as warning about, you know, Foucault warns about technocracy. His whole thing about biopower is that if we start calling things, if we give things the authority of science that are actually politics, then you have this situation where the imprimatur of science is being used to push politics and of course, he's kind of like, well, that's always what's going on. He's not quite that far. If you read in, you know, 78, 79, when he does his lectures on biopower, he's a little warm to science by yeah. that point. But generally speaking, he's still skeptical of it. He's still worried about it. Um, but you can read very clearly. There's a warning. You look at everything that happened with the COVID pandemic and you can just, if you know Foucault, you're like, holy crap. He was right, you know, he, <laughs> not to endorse Foucault, because I think he was dangerously yeah. wrong and scary about a lot of things. But as a warning for how the, and this is what Marx did by calling what he did the scientific study of history, the invoking of the brand of science as a justification for why your politics have to be believed is something very dangerous. And so you see, again, the same idea has been picked up and then said, oh, biopower. And they didn't say we should you know, it's not that everything is bad. It's that everything is dangerous as Foucault put it. They're like, no, that's great. That's a weapon. Let's use that. And so what you're actually seeing is this kind of all these postmodern ideas. I think we do live in postmodernity. When the advent of the internet brought us into postmodernity, whether we like it or not, mass broadcasting as well. Um, they figured out that they can weaponize, they, they uh, being a step ahead uh, with leftist thought, 
figured out how to reverse engineer and weaponize these things against us rather than to use them as a justification to tear down. And if you ask yourself why, it's because they believed Marcuse, that the left has an intrinsic right to do yeah. what it's doing and the right must be suppressed as a result. It must actually be repressed in order to avoid fascism as it gets branded. And so they, they accepted their Marcuse and their fundamental entitlement to get to rule the world and then they saw all these nice tools that the postmodernists were warning about kind of ahead of their time saying, no, this is what technology is allowing. And this is what the world we're going to live in looks like. And it's really bad and despair, despair, despair. And they said, oh yeah, we can use that. We can create the hyper reality and force people to live in it. Let's call it the metaverse. Let's call, we can, we can tailor the narratives and call everything we don't like misinformation and disinformation. And we can suppress people and throw them out of social media under doctrine of repressive tolerance in order to enforce that. What do we have then? We have false consensus, pyrology. Then that's what's going to decide what's legitimate and not. So we can literally create a false consensus. There's even a meme. All the scientists agree. And then one, you know, I don't, and it's like canceled. All the scientists agree. You know, that's exactly how you create a false consensus. And that false consensus is what Lyotard was warning about when he talked about the legitimation by pyrology. And then, you know, with the biopower, you know, definitely we've lived in this biopower abuse techno state under the COVID regime. Uh, and it's just one piece after another, after another, you can see that, that this is, um, this has all been kind of reverse engineered in order to bring about the Marcusean revolution. Yeah. And uh, when you bring up that meme uh, to tie in the fascism, right? All the scientists agree with those that have funded them. <laughs> so. Yeah. Right. How about that? How about that? <laughs> Funny thing about that one. Yeah. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that um, because you did bring up that, you know, that that's what they used as their, um, I guess justification was this rise of the, the fascist state, um, which we're very much seeing. Um, and uh, I, I personally, I'll just preface by saying this, I personally don't think that they are, are divergent. I, I think that, you know, these, uh, um, the, I, I think all of these people who are, you know, the elites that are trying to foist this agenda uh, very much are um, aligned with the, both the Marxist agenda and they're using that as a tool to merge the, you know, fascist corporatocracy, technocracy, uh, global state. Yeah. Yeah. I think that actually one of the outcomes of the last half of the 20th century is that communism dialectically incorporated fascism, that they were always kissing cousins, but now they literally have done a synthesis and put them together into one thing. And China, what you can see, for example, is they have their their market operates under the purview of the CCP. And so you have a fascist state capitalist market happening underneath the communist regime. And we're seeing the opposite being built in the West. The fascism aspect, the corporations have the ability to do things that free governments don't have, uh, or sorry, governments of free people don't have. And so um, they're using the corporations to do a fascistic move uh, and what are they putting inside of it? Equity. So it's communism. Um, yeah. Whether it's environmental equity, whether it's social equity, whether it's, you know, the other letter in, in their little tool is G for governance, but that just means hiring commissars uh, in most regards to enforce the 
environmental and social equity models that they're trying to put forth. Uh, in other words, communism. So, but who's going to run it? Well, an oligarchy of corporate leaders and NGO partners uh, working hand in glove in a public-private partnership with governments, which is by definition fascism. So the fascism is going to lead on this side. Uh, and of course, what you're seeing from the left is that they love fascism when it's theirs. They, they're not anti-fascist in the re least regard. They love fascism if it's pushing their ideas onto everybody and forcing everybody to participate in their ideas as they always have been. Um, you know, scratch a leftist, find a totalitarian. It's just how it goes. And so uh, I think that we're, we're actually looking at, people don't know what to do with it because it's neither pure old school communism, no, Marxism or whatever, nor is it pure old school fascism. But in fact, it's this weird mixture of the two. And if you understand the nature of their dialectical religion, yeah. this makes perfect sense that they would do this in a, mul in a multiplicity of ways. It makes perfect sense that obviously they're going to do this because they have to solve the production problem that the socialist states were never able to do, but the corporations obviously can do. So fascism delivers the goods. So let's go fascist and deliver the goods. But you know, communism never was quite able to. The other thing is, is if you have a communo-fascist uh, China and you have a fascio communist West and those two are in dialectical relationship against one another, mm -hmm. then those things are going to synthesize by the nature of how the master slave dialectic plays out. And so the, you know, there's too much harmony in the world, like to their theological worldview to, to think that they didn't do that on purpose. Exactly. Uh, the, <laughs> Communism and fascism are not, in fact, opposites. They are dialectical pairs. And so they can be synthesized together into a single program. But there are two ways you can do that, just like teacher and student in Paulo Freire are dialectical pairs. They're in opposition. And you can, you can synthesize them. And Freire and the pedagogy of the oppressed says to, he says to synthesize them into teacher students and student teachers. And then so the student teachers and the teacher students work together in a uh, environment in which there is no intrinsic power relation and they synthesize into one community. And so it's the exact same model that plays out in two different domains there. You can see it again in critical race theory where black, black people are said to have double consciousness, both as being black, but living within a white world. And then white people are granted by their white privilege, the ability not to have that. So instead you have to awaken in them a white awareness as Judith Katz phrased it, uh, where, as Robin D'Angelo put it, is the goal is to become less white and to realize there's no such thing as a positive white identity, but you have to be aware of what the white identity actually is. So you awaken a self-loathing double consciousness in white people, and you awaken a self-prideful double consciousness in racial minorities, and then you put those people next to each other and let the dialectic play out. It happens again and again and again and again in all of their little religious uh, enclaves, and so it's to see it at the greatest scale where you're literally seeing the attempt to build what Orwell was, was talking about, mm -hmm. that you have East Asia as communism with fascism inside of it. And then we're going to create Oceania that has fascism with communism inside of it. And the two are always going to be at war, but they're not at war. There are two peas in the same pod that are dialectic, dialectical opposites, which means they're actually in a functional relationship to homogenize with yeah. one another over time. The opposition is only there to reveal contradictions so that they can be resolved so that we end up with what? 
communism that works this time. That's this dialectical solution because it didn't work so far because it couldn't solve the production problem. But if you use the technology and the fascism and the corporati corporatism at the heart of it, you can solve the production problem. China has one approach to that and we'll see how that works. And the West will have a different approach to that and we'll see how that works. But when you put them next to each other, the contradictions will, will reveal themselves and they will synthesize out and eventually will end one giant world uh, homogenization of communism and fascism that has what as a result? Well, everybody's a social person now. Everybody's social man. Everybody lives in this socialist environment where everything is equitable and shared. But of course, there's a top tier that has to manage things because we need that. And, you know, it'll self-justify, et cetera. But in the very, very long end, you don't need that either because, in fact, the machines will do that for you. The singularity will arise. The AI will order everything for everybody and everybody else gets to be equal, period, except, of course, you know, Klaus is never going to allow himself to actually be equal. And so they, that's a contradiction that'll work out eventually, I guess. And you say, well, that's contradictory. It doesn't make sense. Well, it never makes sense. It never makes sense. It's all self-serving power grabs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what do you they, they always think that they're the exception, right? So of course, we're all going to be equal in the end, but not me. I'm the exception to this because the world has to be ordered to make my subjectivity come, come to bear. Right. So is there any uh, way to combat all of this? Well, actually, yes. Um, right. Partly is that they're combating themselves. Uh, I don't know if you saw recently, George Soros came out with his video just going after Xi Jinping. Uh, not a big fan of the China, that guy. And um, he's undoing a lot of the things that they are are doing he's he's on the attack against them and so there's on a certain level like well let's get out of the way and let george do what george does you know and because he's trained his guns on china right now he's still doing his open society stuff he's still meddling in a western elections he's still trying to drag immigrants into every western culture to do whatever weird open society visions he has but he's also now just brazenly attacking chinese interests uh and so you know, one of the major players on the Western side and the major major player on the Eastern side are now in in, in conflict internally uh, because they have different visions for how it's supposed to go. So one thing is, well, let that happen. Let them keep fighting with each other. The other thing is, is it turns out that they can't, they, they can try to force people to do things, but they don't have the tools to force people to do things yet without getting violent, which is going to end up getting them deposed because they're massively outnumbered. Uh, and so they're trying not to get violent. They don't want to get violent. As a matter of fact, 